what I will say is that representation is not enough. And that's something that we have to constantly say, that representation is not enough. It is not enough for someone to be just even Black and female and have those jobs. It is just not enough. Hello, and welcome to Acting Up, the podcast that dives deep into the world of TV and film that highlights our people, our communities, and our stories. I'm your host, Courtney Wills, Entertainment Director at The Grio. And this week, we're speaking with Anjanu Ellis and Dr. Holly Carter, and we'll discuss the upcoming NAACP Image Awards and their journey through Hollywood. We are gearing up for the NAACP Image Awards this weekend, and I'm so happy to have the GRIO's own White House correspondent and DC Bureau Chief and NAACP Image Award nominee, April Ryan, with us here today on Acting Up. April, how you doing? I'm fine, Courtney. I'm acting up. How you doing? (laughs) (laughs) I am great, and I am so proud of you for being nominated for the Social Justice Impact Award. Congratulations, sis. I'm on cloud nine. No matter where it falls, I'm a winner just by being nominated. I cannot believe, Courtney, Stacey Abrams, Tamika Mallory, LeBron James. What? Debbie Allen, what? And little me, I'm like, oh my gosh. We were one of those families that understood the importance of the NAACP. And the Image Awards, I'm so glad that they do this. It's not just about flossing and shining and whatever, being on fleek or whatever they call it. It's not just about that. It's about showing excellence when other people want to make us look another way. It's about lifting us up to say, you too can do it. It's about giving you hope at a time of hopelessness. It's about showing my children, my little girls, your little boy, you can do it. You can do whatever you want to do. You can be whatever you want to be. And I never imagined this for myself. And it's about the positive Black image. Let's say it again. Positive Black image. Because we see so much negative from other people. And I celebrate this. I celebrate the NAACP and any other organization that wants to make us examples. When people, other people want to put us at the low end of the totem pole. Absolutely. It also is the only award ceremony of the year where it's not enough to root for everybody Black, because everybody's Black, right? (laughs) Finally. So who are you rooting for? What were some projects that just got you? I am rooting for my college classmate, most importantly, Dave Talbert, Jingle Jangle. I am so proud of him. We walked on Morgan's campus together, Morgan State University, HBCU, looking up in the sky, Lord, just in a dollar. And here he is. I said, my God. I said, we have really gone big time when you've got all these millions. Now, that's the first thing I thought. I said, this is really nice. I said, I remember back in the day, we were both broke college students and just looking for a dollar. I said, he's dealing with millions of dollars here. I'm so proud of Dave Talbot for putting out a quality product, great music. John Legend, come on. Forrest Whitaker, Anita Noki Rose. I mean, you had so many people in it. The music was dynamic. The scene, he did it in England. And it reminded me, remember growing up, Willy Wonka and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang? He made a holiday classic. I said, that's my classmate. That's who I'm rooting for. But I'm rooting for everyone who is a nominee, everyone who wins. I'm rooting for everyone who watches because it's going to be inspirational. I love that film. I'm going to be watching with my family every Christmas 
forever now. Forever, forever and ever. (laughs) I'm so looking forward to the Image Awards, especially because this year's award season has been so messy. So many snubs at the Golden Globes, so many great things to choose from the Oscars. And of course, I'm happy that Judas and the Black Messiah got six Oscar nods this year. And I know that you had the chance to talk to uh, Representative Bobby Rush about that film, right? What was that like? The news that was made out of that is Bobby Rush said that he wants the name of the FBI building to be changed. J. Edgar Hoover was the first FBI director, and he went after Dr. King. He had a microscope on Dr. King, Malcolm X, and others. And you saw in the film what he did with the Chicago Black Panther Party. And any leader who wanted to bring first-class citizenship to Black people, Jagger Hoover was watching. Yeah. So and it's so interesting, Courtney, and a lot of people don't know this, but former FBI Director James Comey, remember him? Remember mm-hmm. that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Whenever there was a new recruit that came in, he would take the recruit to the King statue and then open up the King files to talk about what overreach looked like. And that was in the hands of then head of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover. What does overreach look like? He opened the file, said it looks like this, and showed the King files. So Congressman Bobby Rush wants to have his name removed. This year, Anjanou Ellis is nominated for two different roles. She's up for Best Supporting Actress in a Drama for her turn as Hippolyta in HBO's Lovecraft Country, as well as for Best Actress in a TV movie, miniseries, or dramatic special for her role of Maddie Moss Clark in Lifetime's The Clark Sisters, First Ladies of Gospel. I sat down with the actress to discuss her journey as a Black woman in Hollywood. Check it out. Hey, Anjanou. So glad to have you here with me today. I just want to jump right in. I did a little research, and I know that you were an AFAM studies major at Brown. Is that right? I'm so glad you asked me that. And this is not to disparage the curriculum at Brown, because I think that it made me what I am in terms of the performer I try to be, which is really reflected in Lovecraft, which is brave. Brown University does better than I think any educational experience that I've had, it insists that its students be brave. What did that look like at Brown at that time? Like, what is an African-American, like, what are they teaching you, right? I think there's so much that I can remember from college in those AFAM courses that I was immersed in and we talked about and it was robust. And then I got out into the world and I never heard about it again until really now, like this content that's coming out, Lovecraft Country and Judas and the Black Messiah and the crack documentary that Stanley Nelson did for Netflix. Like those are things as I'm watching them now in 2020 and 2021, I'm going, oh my gosh, this is what we were learning about way back then. It's taken this long for these conversations to kind of get to the masses and get to the mainstream. And I just wondered if that education in any way informed your career path, because Lovecraft Country is not the first character that you've played that I think really represents Black women in an empowering way, in a way that acknowledges and encompasses our history. And I wondered if that was like a seed that was planted in college. You know, first of all, I wasn't the best model student. I mean, Brown is considered like the birth of political correctness. That whole movement 
happened there, all of these things like dealing with women and rape. And I think that perhaps what I'm doing now is a response to not less so Brown and less so my college experience, but certainly my high school and elementary school experience that unfortunately is still echoed in the college and the experiences that my niece and nephew have now, where we have to tell them, we have to say to them, my nephew has one of those shirts that has Malcolm, Garvey. And I said to him, I said, I want you to know who those people are. I don't want anybody to say, you look cute in it. We think it's fashionable. You know what I'm saying? It's fashionable to wear Black history on our backs. But how much do you know? So I sat him down a couple nights ago and I said, okay, it's five names on this shirt. I want you to tell me who these people are. Mm. And the shame is he'll never learn that in school. No. He's just not going to learn that in school. It has to happen. It has to happen. So if there is any sort of mandate that I have in terms of what I gravitate towards, it's the mandate to wrestle with that erasure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have never met a creative to come out of Tish that didn't have, you know, who just felt a little bit differently in their work, who approached their work a little bit differently and where the success was just kind of apparent. And so I wondered for you, like your entry point into Hollywood, did you come feeling very, very equipped, like, I'm going to do this, I'm going to be successful? Or was your road, you know, bumpy? My road, uh, appropriately, because I still live on a dirt road in Mississippi, filled with rocks and (laughs) rain-made potholes, it is yet rocky. I have to say, when I was in school, when I went to NYU, NYU was not prepared. And like so many professional creative schools, don't have any sort of real vision for the Black American students. They invite us in, they want the numbers, but they don't know what the heck to do with us when we're there. And so we spent a lot of time with my classmates and particularly myself fighting that, fighting and having completely soul-injuring conversations with teachers who we had to do Dancing at Lunasa, which is an Irish play because they weren't trying to do anything from our canon. So I'm cool with that. But if I'm going to be in it, you can't have a conversation with me and say to me, okay, I need you to straighten your hair. And I say, why do you need me to straighten my hair? And her reaction is, well, I need your hair to be pretty. Wow. I will never forget that. I'm sure, I don't know, probably was like 21, 22. And to hear this white woman say this to me, and what I had to say to her was, my hair is pretty. My hair is pretty. We have a whole lot of cultural affirmation now. It's a movement affirming Black American beauty. But that was not the case back then at all. So thankfully, I had that in my bones to tell that woman, no, my hair is pretty. I am enough. And so I have to say that the gift of NYU was the exposure that it gave me, gave me a leg up that I would not have had otherwise. But where I have learned to do the job has been on sets, has been working with Sam Jackson and watching him, watching his professionalism and my acting school. What I've learned the most came from the experience of working. Yeah. 
And that experience that you had in college with that woman telling you that about your hair, I'm sure that's certainly not the one and only time that that kind of conflict or that kind of conversation has occurred. After 2020, after George Floyd, after Hollywood started making these giant sweeping declarations, we're going to have 50% women of color in the writer's room, we're going to commit this many million dollars to diversity and all of that stuff. I wonder as someone who's been navigating Hollywood for so long, is the shift, does it feel tangible? I mean, is it truly perceptible or do you think it's, you know, still in kind of a performative phase? Can you perceive the shift as far as agency for Black women in Hollywood right now? I want to be really transparent on a couple of things. One is that I can't speak for anybody else but myself. And I feel that there are women who are directing and writing sort of a lot has improved and advanced tremendously. And I'm excited for that. And I think that's wonderful. I can only speak for myself. So what I will say is that representation is not enough. And that's something that we have to constantly say, that representation is not enough. It is not enough for someone to be just even Black and female and have those jobs. It is just not enough. This trick of racism is so profound and so deep and so saturated that there's so much work to do to unlearn and unmoor all of that. It affects the content that these Black showrunners choose to do. It affects who they cast. So let's start there, that representation is not enough. It's just not enough. And then the other part of that is, as someone who has worked as much as I have, certainly I ain't worked as much as I wanted to, but... My resume is relatively long. 90% of it ain't nobody seen, but what they have seen, it matters. And I struggle with, certainly in the throes of struggling with, not being paid enough, not being paid enough. And compared to what my white female contemporary counterparts, what they get paid, not in the same league. The fact that Octavia Spencer, this this story has been very public, that Jessica Chastain had to advocate for her salary to be comparable to hers. And Octavia Spencer is an Oscar winner. I'm I'm talking about their metrics. I'm just on their metrics. You know what I mean? Talking about their metrics. What qualify for that world, right? She's an Oscar winner and Jessica Chastain who is not an Oscar winner, has to advocate for her salary to be comparable to hers. That's absurd to me. And so I know what I experienced having worked on television and movies, and I know that what I'm paid ain't nowhere near what my white female contemporaries would get paid. And here's the thing, sometimes those producers are male and Black. So what I'm saying is it's not enough to have Black producers and directors if we are continuing the practice of disrespecting Black women when it comes to their pay, disrespecting Black women and how they are portrayed, all of that stuff. It's more than who is in power positions. It's a far greater consideration than that. I'm so glad that you said that. That is literally like the crux of the work that I'm doing right now when it comes to entertainment, you know, and how it relates to real kind of consequences in our communities. That's exactly it. It's like, how do we actually start holding Hollywood accountable 
for implementing real tangible change. I would think that maybe you might have come to realize that no matter what you do, how outstanding you are, you might not get the credit that we all think that you should. So what are your metrics? How do you measure how it's going for you when you know that the larger system isn't necessarily going to recognize you that way? I'm figuring that out. I have to say, I'm figuring that out. You know, I said to someone the other day, I said, we can't let their standards be our metric for Black excellence. And you kind of have to say those things to the world and to yourself in order to keep going. But in terms of that paycheck getting bigger, those kinds of things matter. Have you been nominated for things? Did you win? You know, those tangible things put money in your pocket. They're a metric. It puts money in your pocket. That's just the case. And so for me as someone who wants to provide for my family and the way that they deserve to be provided for, I wake up in the morning and I go to bed at night thinking about it. It's a preoccupation, but it's a preoccupation because why is it Black women still have to struggle with that? Viola Davis talks about it constantly. And I feel if Viola Davis is still battling this, then, you know, you know what I mean? I go like, well, I don't have a shot, but yet I still have to. Yet I still have to. I recently wrote one of the producers of a project that I just recently worked on. And I said, I wasn't paid. I was not paid respectfully. Someone could look at that and go, you shouldn't do that. But if I don't do it, who will? If you're not going to start off a conversation with me paying me what I deserve to be paid, then I have to say this, whether you agree or not, but I have to say this. And we can't pretend that this is happening in the vacuum. I did a panel a few months ago with a lot of brilliant young women, Black women, and one of the women made it very, very clear that this is something that has been happening since we have moved from forced labor in this country, the work of Black women and how it is valued in moneyed terms. In terms of like the work of dealing with that, I am actively dealing with that. I'm talking about it with you, I'm running producers, because there are things that I wanna do for my family that I know if I were somebody else, I could easily do for them, but I can't, and that's wrong. In terms of what keeps me going, and I've been asked this several times about my not getting nominated for the Clark Sisters and everything like that, But, you know, I really ultimately wanted to be nominated because I wanted it for the Clark sisters. I wanted it as a celebration of those kind of women, women who are working class, go to church on Sundays. And for me, the reality is those women are the root and the sustenance of any movement that has been successful in terms of Black progress. Number one, the civil rights movement. For me, that's what it would have been an affirmation and celebration of those women. Here's the thing, though. The Clark sisters, they thought they had already been nominated. <laughs> you know what I mean? They, one of them called me, Dorinda called me, and she said, well, congratulations on the Emmy nomination. And myself and the director, Christine Swanson, we had to tell her we weren't nominated. We weren't getting nominated. But for them, they didn't care. For them, it was, they know who they are. And so that's a lesson to me, is that I have to know who I am. I have to know that not everybody gonna like it, but there are people and they reach out to me and tell me this. They feel that the work I did in that movie or in Lovecraft, that it mattered to them. 
so much of the work that you've done has mattered to me and I know has mattered to so many people in our communities. And sadly, I know that I have to let you go. But my last question for you is circling back to what you just said about, you know, if you don't have these conversations, who's going to? Is that feeling that, no, I'm going there. No, I'm going to ask. I'm going to call them out. Is that new as far as you feeling like you have the agency to do that without risking your reputation or, you know, what people will want to work with you or being worried about being labeled, you know, difficult or a diva? Has there been anything or any time or any event that kind of made you make that switch from really pardon my French, but like eating shit to like, no, I'm not taking that anymore. I think that for me personally, that I can't pretend that underpayment of the work and labor of Black women is not real. We all know it's real. It's real. It's real for white women. They get underpaid. So we know we get underpaid. We know that. I know what, you know, I could name a couple names. I know what these women get paid to do movies. We see it all the time, you know, information gets out there. You know how as brilliant as they are, but I know how they get paid. And my resume stands up, my resume stands up. I don't know. I feel like I'm too old to not tell the truth. And here's what I do. What I do when I go on sets is I try to be the best scene partner I can be. I try to be kind. I try to make everybody's life easier. And when I go home at the end of the day, I'm not always perfect, but when I go home at the end of the day and can say that to myself, I make everybody's life easier because I'm older. I feel like I shouldn't come to work to try to make everybody's life hard. It's already a hard job to do. So I should come to work. I work with younger actors a lot, try to make them feel welcome and loved and supported and a cheerleader. That's what I do. If I'm working with somebody, a contemporary, be the best scene partner I can do. Try to do it in a way that people around me feels honored and respected. If I've done that, then I have done my job. Now, I've done that already, but you can't underpay me. You know what I mean? And me not say anything. And my not saying anything because I'm scared. It's time out for us to be scared. Yeah. Fear does nothing but create more fear and create more underpayment. And I want to be really specific about that. Create a situation where we don't get to tell the stories that we need to tell. So it's my job, particularly as someone who is an older actor, it's my job to speak the truth because maybe I won't profit from it, but somebody behind me will. Someone who comes next to me, who these producers have to give a check to, maybe they will get the check, but I'm going to tell the truth. I'm going to do it honorably. I'm going to do it respectfully, but I'm going to tell the truth. Thank you so much for that. Thank you for your candor. I love this conversation and I am truly such a huge fan of your work. This has been a real treat to get to finally sit down with you and hear it straight from you. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. April, how wild is that to hear from someone like Anjanou Ellis is still struggling to just get her check in Hollywood? But it's just not Anjanou Ellis. She was talking about Octavia Spencer. I'm like, what? Period. It's like, we are never paid our worth. We're never seen as worthy. And that's the problem. This thing is structural. It's generational. We are better than the vast majority that's out here. Some of the stuff that gets an Oscar award, I'm like, huh, I still don't understand about the end of the story. 
when we tell a story, everybody's like, oh, it's amazing. And never give us our due. Talk about how exemplary the actors were. And we run circles around so many people. Never get the credit. Never get the compensation. Never reaching the status or the level that we should be in. The struggling artist, always. Always. And then you, did you peep where she's like, Octavia Spencer, an Oscar winner, needed Jessica Chastain, not an Oscar winner. So even when someone breaks through, the effect of an Oscar win for a Black actor or actress in Hollywood is not even the same effect as it has on their white counterparts. You win an Oscar and you're still... You win an Oscar years ago, you win an Oscar, your salary was basically, that determined your commas and zeros that were coming. But now it's like, it's just another bump in the road. It's like, I get the accolade, but where's the commensurate salary? So it's it's sad. You have to fight for your right to party in any industry. And in entertainment, it's sad. It is so sad. And I've seen people laugh when we get millions for creating a product and selling it to a company or billions even. I've seen people that like, we're not deserving. Who rates what's deserving and who's deserving? You tell me. That bothers me. That bothers me a lot. Me too. Representation is not enough. And after a while, it's like, okay, what needs to move the needle? What needs to move the needle? And this is where I believe the Congressional Black Caucus hit it. They're like, look, you have to learn how to not just sit at the table, but learn the game and then own the game and the table. Yeah. also sat down with Dr. Holly Carter, a woman who's been making some serious power plays in the industry. As the founder and CEO of Releve Entertainment, she specializes in talent partnerships, brand development, and TV and film production, delivering high-quality, breakthrough family and faith-inspired programming. Her production credits include last year's most-watched TV movie, Lifetime's The Clark Sisters. Releve's upcoming projects include Mahalia, a feature film that she's producing with Jamie Foxx and Queen Latifah, starring Jill Scott, based on the gospel legend and activist Mahalia Jackson. Just this week, her company announced plans to develop and produce History in Color, a premium docuseries that will explore the contributions of Black trailblazers, disruptors, and unsung heroes, and that's in partnership with Morgan Freeman and Lori McCreary's Revelations Entertainment. I sat down with the industry veteran to get some insight on her road to success and how she's handled her role as a manager to some of Black Hollywood's elite. Have a listen. I know that your faith is such a kind of guiding force in your life and in your career. And we've seen that translate in in the kind of projects that you seem to take on. What is it like to navigate the sharky waters of Hollywood with such a strong attachment to your faith? And how do you kind of manage to balance those roles? Well, I balance my faith and this work in Hollywood by being adamant on not compromising, by leading with integrity, by always being willing to ask for forgiveness, always being willing to find my place in an issue and resolve it. Because I am a strong personality. I'm a strong personality. I'm a Black mother. I'm out of the church. Me and Jesus will let you have it in a minute. But I will always come back to myself or come back to a place where I felt like I might have hurt. I lead by my heart 
and I will not compromise. And I am very big on apologizing and I have learned the lesson of forgiving. Mm -hmm. So many networks, so many studios, so many brands make huge declarations and huge commitments and huge promises about how they are going to push forward when it comes to diversity and inclusion, how they're going to change some of the old school ways of handling representation and who should be telling black stories and how many black women are in the writer's room and how many are behind the camera and how many are producers and how many are managers. And I wonder for you, as a woman who's kind of been navigating this landscape, what has been perceptible when it comes to the shifts of late, if anything? Have you perceived any actual change or so far is it a lot of words? My perception has been, let us see the consistency of it. Let us see the commitment to it. And then we will feel the impact of it. We've got to see. I mean, right now there is great talk, great efforts, great strides toward, but we will see how far that goes because right now they're making moves. Mm -hmm. But let's see how committed that mandate is. I'm optimistic, but I'm also mindful. But it also brings me back to the time that we're in. When there is a moment that is in front of you, I think as women, as believers, as creatives, we have to seize it while it's there. And so while they are contemplating, building, opening, we will be seizing the moments so that if they decide to pivot and turn in a different direction, we will at least have gotten our voice heard. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. One thing that Anjanu spoke about was how frustrated that she was about the pay inequity in Hollywood when it comes particularly yeah. to Black actors. And, mm -hmm. you know, someone like her, I could just sit here all day and name off a million incredible roles, a million incredible performances from her. And so to hear someone like her, who at least from the outside seems to have, quote unquote, made it, is still really very unhappy with the way that she is compensated for her work, especially when compared to white actresses mm -hmm. of a similar caliber. I was shocked to hear, but I wasn't shocked that that was the truth. And I wonder as someone who I would imagine as a manager has often been in those conversations where you're negotiating for your clients and advocating for your clients and for your projects. Number one, what do you think about that pay inequity when it comes to Black actors? And what do you think can be done to actually combat it? Well, I think the pay inequity for Black actors is just that inequity. I feel like it's a statement that has ran the test of time. And so that is among the many things that we are looking for in this period of awakening to change. And as a voice of change and a negotiator, I'm looking to support that position. And I am the one that will always start a conversation with in this climate. <laughs> mm -hmm. You're going to want to give up a little bit more. And I have no problem with doing that. So I'm excited to see that change. And I'm excited to be one of the voices that helped to make that change. Because even as producers, we have the same argument. Didn't you just pay? Well, my production company is just as. 
And we do the same work. I think we all are fighting for those same pay inequities to change. And I hear Anjanu, uh, just like I heard Viola Davis. Absolutely. So we are looking for that inequity to become equitable, respectful, fair, and to become judicious. Because at this point, it hasn't been. Right. And it shouldn't be that way. And so let's see what this moment in time will do for our overall issues with inequality. Yeah. I want to back up a little bit. Some of the listeners who might not be so familiar with your career path and where all you have been, I want to fill them in. I mean, when we start to think about the beginning of your career, I think I read that you were casting for shows like The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and Rock and some of our absolute favorites. How did you even get in the door? What was your entry point into Hollywood? And then walk me through how we arrived to now, where you're inking overall deals with OWN and putting up, again, the most viewed television film of the year. I started really and truly based on relationships. This is relationship driven. Mm-hmm. And my godfather was the head makeup artist for this tabloid news show called Hard Copy. And he brought me in to work with the head segment producer of the show, clipping newspaper articles. And Hard Copy used to do shows about the most heinous murder or salacious drama. And the job of the show was to recast it and recreate it. Mm. And so my job was to clip newspaper articles that I felt were big and fuzzy and loud and all that good stuff. And so I did it. And I did that for almost a year just as a way to get in and understand what the process was, what the flow, how do you deal with people and these executives and these personalities and all of that good stuff. And then I did that for a while. Then I transitioned into television casting and I worked for Monica Swan and Eileen Knight. And Monica Swan happened to be the sister of my pastor at the time. And so that's how I got that gig. And that was interesting. I mean, the Fresh Prince, Rock, In Living Color, we did a lot. And I really, really loved it. The thing about casting, casting taught you detail. You know, you spell people's names right. Make sure your cast sheet is lined up properly. Do your research. Go and, you know, if you can't find something, don't come back to me until you get the answer. And I was, Monica Swan was like that. She was like, do your homework. It taught me a lot of detail a lot of follow-up and follow-through. And then after finishing that, I wanted to go into talent representation because I felt like I want to do more than just lining up a casting sheet and bringing the actors to the door. I want to actually work with the talent and curate opportunities for the talent and find ways to bring them into their next level. And so that's when I started working with Usher and then started working with the gospel music artists, and didn't do that really until I finished like 15, 16 years working with Usher for the TV and film side, then ushered in Kirk Franklin's The Mary Mary's, the Yolanda Addison, the CeCe Winans of the world. And then I was like, okay, I've done this talent thing. Now I want to curate content that's aspirational and uplifting and redemptive. And so that's when I started, we did the gospel. That was my first project. And after the gospel, we did the Preachers franchise and we did Preachers of L.A., Atlanta, Detroit. And that just kept me motivated. And I started really focusing on the content that I felt was redemptive and uplifting. And with all of the projects that we've done up to that point brought me to this all three deal, which has been amazing. It's interesting. They got into business with an African-American producing 
a production company before it was the mandate. So they got the vision. What would you say has been the biggest challenge as a Black woman and as a Black woman, again, going in and negotiating often for other Black women and other Black people in an industry that doesn't always value our voices, our talent, and our demands? It's certainly difficult to navigate a system set up for a certain group of people. That's just what I'll say. It's set up for a certain group of people. But that's the beauty about a woman of faith. You keep pushing, you keep fighting until there's a place for you at the table. You bring the chair. Don't wait to be handed a chair. You bring it. And you bring your confidence and you bring your boldness and you bring your heart to the opportunity because we matter. We bring something special. And I absolutely believe that anything worth having is worth fighting for. And everything is not easy. Nothing is handed to us. We use our gifts to usher in our gets. That's what I'd say. I know you have some other projects that you are working on, specifically over at OWN. Talk to me about that deal. Talk to me about what it feels like to have an overall deal that obviously was co-signed by Oprah Winfrey. I mean, I would think as a Black woman of faith, that might be like the Hollywood Mecca. (laughs) The Hollywood Mecca. I love it. Yeah, it's been a real blessing. They allow me to do what I know to do. They have been great partners. We're working on the second installment of our music series kind of events and specials. We did our own Christmas, December, and now we are launching on March 30th, our own Easter. And that has Fantasia, Anthony Hamilton, Kirk Franklin. Yes. Green. It's a really interesting CC wine. It's really beautiful array of talented artists sharing the story of Easter in music and spoken word. And it's going to be a really special event. There's a kind of a franchise list of movies that we're doing based on a concept I created called Song and Story. And it is creating narratives around faith songs and songs that have kind of changed the face of our faith, if you will. So we're starting with Amazing Grace and we're coming behind with Yesterday, Mary Mary's Yesterday. So we're creating stories around that. So I'm really excited. Dr. Holly Carter, thank you so much for being with me on Acting Up today. And we'll be rooting for you at the Image Awards for sure. Thank you. April, thank you so much for hanging out with me here on Acting Up today. Be sure to check out all of her coverage coming straight from the White House on The Griot and be on the lookout for her new book out next year, Black Women Will Save the World. Yes, we will. My love letter to America. See ya. Bye. Thanks for listening to Acting Up. If you liked what you heard, please give us a five-star review and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. Please email all questions, suggestions, and compliments to podcasts at thegrio.com. Acting Up is brought to you by The Grio and executive produced by Courtney Wills and produced by Kevin Y. Brown and Cameron Blackwell. For more with me and Acting Up, check us out on Instagram at actingup.pod. 